words be more than words. Give us the spirit of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. I know this Sunday is a dangerous Sunday to talk about hope. But my question this morning is this. Where do you locate hope? And I know this Sunday it's dangerous to talk about hope. As soon as I ask the question, some folks here will say, I place my hope in Tom Brady. Others might say Matt Ryan. And most everyone will say, I'm just hoping Mike keeps this sermon short. (laughs) I'm hoping too. I'm hoping I got the names of those quarterbacks right. I'm not much of a football fan. There's always hope, right? I found myself, though, returning again and again to this question over the past weeks. Where do you locate hope? I've been thinking about hope as I've listened to some of my more liberal, progressive friends try and gauge their reactions to the last few weeks. I've heard things like this. And don't worry, this new president won't last very long. I've also heard this. Impeach him now. And those statements are sometimes serious and sometimes tongue-in-cheek. But in the spread between sincerity and sarcasm, I hear a sort of testing. How long? How long do we have to keep up the resistance? How long until we can stop showing up at protests? When can we stop all this writing and calling our legislators? How long? What moment, what change will indicate that we're done? A resignation? The rescinding of an executive order? What exactly are we looking for? Where do we locate hope? My more conservative friends are asking a similar set of questions. How long are these liberals going to keep this up? Why can't they get over it? What will be the sign that we were right? What will stop them? These questions are also about the location of hope. It's my job to take a look at scripture with you this morning, to open up the tradition of the church. I'm afraid our lessons this morning do not point to quick resolutions. There aren't easy answers. For the Bible, hope is not a short-term project. For followers of Jesus, hope can be built on nothing less than Jesus' dream. Our hope rests on the kingdom of God. Let's turn to the Bible. Isaiah's people find themselves in a state of grumbling. They've just returned from exile in Babylon, but their cities are in ruin. It seems that God is not hearing their prayers. In the theology of the time, the proper response to God's silence was fasting. So all through Judea, they put on sackcloth. They rolled around in ashes. And still, still, God did not hear their plea. The prophet Isaiah gives them a shocking reply. Is this not the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of injustice to undo the thongs of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? 
when you see the naked to cover them and not to hide yourself from your own kin. Isaiah's people want a quick resolution. They want God to hear their plea, to honor their fast. It doesn't work that way, Isaiah says. You have forgotten your own kin. The people are suffering because the structures of society are unjust. If if you want God to hear your cry, if you want to make Judea great again, Tend to the hungry, the homeless, the suffering. Remember the poor. You get a sense of the tradition Jesus develops in these chapters of Isaiah. For Jesus, as for Isaiah, God is attentive to the treatment of those who are lost, least, and left out. So it's no surprise that the gospel also complicates matters. Be salty, Jesus tells his followers. Interesting metaphor. (laughs) Let your light shine. These passages are a meditation on the quality of discipleship. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? Don't lose your flavor. Don't hide your light. The kingdom is coming, he tells them, but it's not coming quickly. Steal yourselves. Be salty. Shine. Now, last week, as I was here with you at church and we listened to our hymns and read scripture together, it sort of dawned on me again how much of our Christian tradition is built for resistance. Our faith was made for times like these. Christianity was forged in opposition to an empire. When Roman citizens chanted, Caesar is Lord, Christians responded, Jesus is Lord. The great moments in Christian history tend to be moments when Jesus' movement inspired resistance. From the early martyrs to Francis of Assisi's stand for the poor. From Martin Luther to Martin Luther King. Oscar Romero to Dorothy Day. Christianity is built for resistance. There's a reason so many of our hymns found resonance on the Underground Railroad, and again during the Civil Rights era. The best Christian music is written and sung by people who are able to name their present reality and say, this injustice is not what God dreams for us. Jesus teaches about the kingdom, the coming reign of God, the world as it should be. I said this realization dawned on me last week. So much of our scripture, so many of our songs were written for resistance. I knew resistance was in there. I've read Howard Thurman. My favorite theologians tend to be liberationists from Latin America. But over these last eight years, I wonder if my sense of resistance grew more diffuse. I've spent a lot of time and energy on the new president of the United States. I want to take a moment to think about the previous president, the role of the church over the last eight years. I confess, when President Obama was inaugurated, I remember worrying a bit about all of the fuss. I worried that we were letting ourselves off the hook because we'd gotten such a man elected. 
I was in Washington, D.C., and there were posters and ice sculptures all over the city. The D.C. Metro, Washington's subway system, even made a metro card with the president-elect's face on it. When we inaugurated the president, it was with great fanfare, huge celebration. At the time, it was easy to see the celebration as a natural embrace from the highest majority black city in America of the first black president. But still, I remember some disquiet in my heart, some of which was there because the president-elect was saying, what's the fuss about? I worried a bit after the inauguration when the new president was pleading with his supporters to keep up the movement, to call their senators and congresspeople. The president asked people to show up, to participate in the democratic process, but somehow it seemed the energy that had gotten him elected dissipated soon after he was in office. I worry that for many of us, at least subconsciously, the election of President Obama served as a sign that we had arrived in the world for which we had hoped? Did we get complacent? Eight years ago, did we elect a president or a savior? That question may seem a bit unfair, but it gets to my question about the location of hope. I'm wondering if some of the hand-wringing these past days since President Trump's coming into office has come from displaced hope. It was easy to rest a great deal of hope in President Obama. I mean, heck, the main campaign poster made by one of my famous, favorite artists, Shepard Ferry, just had his face and the word hope. It's easy to understand how we could have placed so much hope there. Even when he asked us not to trust his ability to bring change, but rather ours. As Christians, is there another way? Could we work with a politician while still locating our hope in an agenda far beyond that of any political party? I've shared with you before the story of the friendship between Archbishop Desmond Tutu of South Africa and Nelson Mandela, that nation's first democratically elected president. And both men separately received the Nobel Peace Prize for their work in ending apartheid, forging a new inclusive nation. And for decades under the apartheid government, Bishop Tutu advocated for the release of Nelson Mandela from the Robben Island prison. And in 1990, Mandela spent his first night of freedom in the house of the archbishop. It came as a surprise for Mandela when Bishop Tutu refused to join his political party, the African National Congress. And Tutu felt that he could not, as a church official, publicly identify with any party, even Mandela's. For Bishop Tutu, the only loyalty he could profess was to God's kingdom. Until the kingdom of this world became the kingdom of our God, no one party, no one movement, no one issue could define the hope of the church. Bishop Tutu's faith was forged in resistance. 
He grew up unable to swim in the ocean at whites-only beaches, unable to study in whites-only schools. Bishop Tutu developed a suspicion of government, even a government run by one of his close friends, a member of his own tribe. When I try to conceive of what Jesus means when he tells his followers they are the salt of the earth, I can't come up with a better image than Bishop Tutu explaining to President Mandela that he plans to keep an independent voice in case he needs to stand up to the new government for the sake of the gospel. That's pretty salty. So I return to my initial question. Where do you locate hope? In the coming weeks and years, can we be wary of easy answers? When it comes to hope, can we play the long game? Can we persist against the desire for this all to be over? Can we overcome complacency? Can we build our hope on nothing less than Jesus' faith and righteousness? If we do, our hearts will be restless. As St. Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they rest in God. But placing your hope in the kingdom of God gives you perspective from which to move. Placing your hope in that coming kingdom where all God's people are welcomed, where all God's people are valued, placing your hope there gives you incentive to keep moving, to keep restless. Will your restlessness help you move from sorrow or anger to action? Will you stay salty? Will you let your light shine? Will you loose yokes and let the oppressed go free? Will you clothe the naked and house the homeless? Will justice be the fast you choose? How long do we resist? Well, Christians, if we place our hope in God, we resist until the coming of Christ's kingdom. We locate our hope in the kingdom of God. Amen.